For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray together for our time in the word. Father, we come tonight to sit under the preaching of your word. Your word is regarded as foolishness by the world. The message of the cross is regarded as stupidity. And yet for us, this message is our life. We pray that you will use the message of the cross to save and to sanctify even tonight. Your word is able to give the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You have breathed out all of scripture and your word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. We need this work of your word tonight. We need to hear from your word tonight. Create in us a desperation for you, a desperation, a longing, a hunger for your word. And then satisfy that desire with the food of your word. Sanctify us in the truth of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Every Good Friday brings about an inevitable conversation, probably for all of you, at least in your mind, in your heart, if not in actual conversation that you might have with a number of people. Why do we call it Good Friday? Why do we call it good? Why do we call it good when we're focusing on someone's death? 
It's an obvious question to ask and it is a valid question if you think about it. Why is it good that an innocent man was murdered in one of the most violent, bloody, painful, disgusting, torturous manners? Why is it good that such a benevolent man was murdered in such a heinous way? Why is the death of Jesus good when it was also evil? Why is it celebrated when it was sinful? Why do we show our children pictures of a cross and talk to them about God's son dying as if it were a good thing? Christians instinctively know the answer to that question. We know why it's good. It's the rest of the world that's troubled by it. Bunnies, eggs, springtime, pastel colors, new clothes, family gatherings around a large meal. All of that is more understandable when it comes to celebrating, isn't it? Not somebody's execution. This evening, our gathering and our joy in it seem to defy our natural instincts as to what is good and meaningful and worth the effort that we're putting into it. So we want to ask and answer the question tonight, why is it that we preach the cross? Now the passage that Dalton read actually answers that question, doesn't it? It answers the question why we preach the cross. Now, if you want to look into the actual historical details of the crucifixion of Jesus, they are recorded for you in all four Gospels. The illegal trials at night by the jealous Jewish leaders. The back and forth between Pilate and Herod, both trying to shift responsibility to the other for a death they knew had to happen to settle down the masses. But neither one of them could find a legal reason for carrying it out. The severe scourging of the creation's creator that left him half dead while being mocked by godless soldiers. The winding road of mourners, hecklers, curious crowds, watching Jesus carry his cross at least part of the way to the hill outside the city noted for its skull-like likeness. The Gospels tell us about the mocking of guilty thieves, hypocritical religious leaders, soldiers without a conscience. We remember the seven brief sayings from the lips of the Lamb of God that speak volumes in terms of forgiveness and eternal life and the necessity of his death. The Gospels tell us about the ripping of the temple's veil, the shaking of the earth, the weeping of the women, the astonishment of the soldiers. We can read about all of those details in the Gospel accounts and they are fascinating, they're mesmerizing, they're helpful. But if that's all we had, we might still wonder if it's good. That's why the representatives of Christ, the apostles, unpack for us through the rest of the Bible, through the New Testament epistles all the way to the end. They unpack for us not just the details of what happened on that Good Friday, but why did they happen? Why did they happen? What is the impact? What is the significance? What's the depth of what happened on the cross on Good Friday that would cause us to so identify our lives with it that we would actually take out a day like today, an evening like this evening, and we would celebrate a cross? In 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul tells us why the death of Jesus and the constant communication about the message that comes from the cross is actually good. Why do we preach 
the message of the cross. So for Good Friday, I want us to meditate on why we preach the cross and that it is good. Three reasons why we constantly preach the goodness of the cross. First of all, the cross defies our natural instincts, and that is good. The cross actually defies our natural instincts, and that's good. Our natural instincts are what cause us so many spiritual problems, aren't they? If you look at verse 18, it begins with this statement, for the word of the cross. The word of the cross is foolishness. What does Paul mean by that phrase, the word of the cross? Well, he means by that the message that is characterized by the cross. That's what he means by that phrase. The word of the cross is the message that's characterized by the cross. Fundamentally, it draws our mind back to that event of Calvary. Indeed, it does and it should, but it is more than that. If we were to go back and we were to meditate on even one of the gospel accounts that we find, such as like Matthew chapter 27, and we looked into what that text was emphasizing, we would see a lot about the cross. We would also note, and perhaps you have noticed this as you've been reading through the passages of the crucifixion, if you've not noticed it, go back and read them again afresh this weekend. Have you ever noticed how little the gospel accounts focus our attention on the actual physical aspects of the cross. Now, it is common for us to listen and read doctors' reports of what physically happens to a person on the cross. Perhaps you read every year, as I do, about the Filipinos who actually have themselves literally crucified to crosses as an act of penance for their sins throughout the year. You ever read about that? Yes, it's, it's been going on. But the cross, as it's described in Matthew 27, is not about the physical aspects of the cross. It was about the shamefulness of the cross. If you were to hear what Matthew emphasized when he described the cross, you would hear all about shame. The cross had every form of rejection imaginable associated with it. Crosses and crucifixion was restricted for the worst kinds of criminals in first century society. It was a public display of their weakness and helplessness. Men would be left on crosses for days, if not weeks, left there for the birds to come and pick their flesh. Soldiers mocked Christ. Passers-by derided him. Jewish leaders mocked him. The criminals who were crucified beside him even mocked him. The sign above his head was a sign of mockery about who he claimed to be. He was mocked as powerless. He was dressed and he was beaten like an impotent king. He was treated like a fool. Even what they offered him to drink, the drink of wine, but mixed, being mixed with something bitter was all to mock him. He was stripped of all of his clothing and it was used for a quick game of chance at his feet. All again... Merely to mock him and to shame him. Jesus, when he hung on the cross, he looked as if he were godless. He even cried out to God, quoting Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And indeed, God treated him as if he had committed all the sins of those who would ever believe. 
everything about the cross was shameful. When you look at the cross, everything about it was disgusting. It was culturally unacceptable. It was the kind of event that no one in their right mind would ever associate themselves with. As D.A. Carson says in his commentary in Matthew, he said, what would you think if a woman came to work wearing earrings stamped with an image of a mushroom cloud from the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima? You'd think that's weird, that's odd. That same kind of shock and horror was associated with the cross and crucifixion in the first century. Yet today, you see them everywhere. They're on our buildings, they're on our letterheads, they grace bishops, they shine from lapels, they dangle from ears, and no one is scandalized because of it. But it's not just the act at Calvary that is spoken of here. It is the message of the cross. Everything that would be associated with the cross that makes it a full-bodied message to be preached in that sense, the message of the cross includes even the resurrection, doesn't it? It includes actually all of the epistles throughout the rest of the New Testament that reveal what the act of Calvary actually accomplished and what its effects should look like in an ongoing way in our lives. It includes even the book of Revelation that pictures the slaughtered lamb of God who will bring God's recompense on a world that has rejected him and established eternal righteousness on the earth. For that matter, the word of the cross, the message of the cross, has to include all of the messages of all of the Old Testament books, each revealing the nature of the God who brought the events to fruition and why he had to do so. And all that preceded the cross to make that one event of Calvary so significant. So in short, the message of the cross is the whole Bible. The whole of every book of scripture because it's all related to the grand account of God revealing himself in a way that redeems what he creates and brings him eternal glory and us eternal salvation. Outside the word of God, outside of the scriptures that make us wise to salvation, what Paul says here in this text, he says, I really don't have anything else to talk to you about. Just the message of the cross. But it was so shameful, so foolish in the eyes of the world. In fact, ancient Roman graffiti has been found depicting a worshiper standing before a crucified figure with the body of a man and the head of an ass and the inscription, Alexamenos worships his God. Even the first century ridiculed Christians. Don't you sometimes feel that? When you're about to have a conversation, when you can see the conversation coming with a coworker or a neighbor who has no connection whatsoever in their heart and their mind to the things of God, they don't believe in Christ, they have no real categories for Christ or the value of aligning their life with him, doesn't it feel culturally strange to you? Because you know as soon as you go into the story of it all and you describe it and you start talking about what this scriptural story has personally done in your life, you think, this has got to be crazy to them. They're going to see me as a mindless fool. They're going to look at me as irrelevant I'm given to something that seems so distant from any logical worldview that we have had. Right. 
That's right. That is how spiritually dead people think. It is. Why? Their eyes inwardly cannot see the value of a crucified Savior. If they, if they see a Savior, he's got to be a Savior that comes in might and power and strength, not weakness and mockery. The cross is foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. That's what it says in verse 18. It's silly. But to us who are being saved, just note being saved, like we're constantly in the work of salvation, we're being saved. What is it to us? The very power of God. What looks powerless, what was mocked as helpless and weak is the very power of God himself. But modern philosophical thought doesn't see it that way. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Psychology says to us that the gospel is not enough. We need an added wisdom. Sociology says the gospel isn't even helpful. It doesn't meet our basic social needs. Medicine can tell us that the gospel is irrelevant. It doesn't follow a naturalistic worldview. Cosmology says the Bible is good for what it was in an ancient world, but it has no relevance compared to what we know now. But none of those ideologies can bring you to a right understanding of what it means to be acceptable before God. In fact, psychology, sociology, medicine, cosmology, all of them will leave you empty of salvation. In and of themselves, they cannot bring you to God. In and of themselves, if you rely on any way of thinking outside the message of the cross, you cannot come to know God. Do you see it in verse 21? Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Do you understand what that's saying? It was God's plan, his wise plan to devise something that the world through its own means of wisdom could never use to reach him. They couldn't know him. And so God was well pleased through the foolishness of a message preached to save those who believe. Our natural inclinations are to find experts who bring their best thinking to the table to solve our biggest issues in life. And those best thinkers would never have come up with the cross as a means of solving our biggest issue with God. God designed salvation to be impossible to reach through what we naturally turn to. I, I am fascinated with the modern evangelical world that is trying to make the gospel seem palatable to modern minds. As if we could take some kind of logic or wisdom and convince everybody. You cannot come to know God outside of a foolish message like the cross. Why is that good? Because what is natural to our sin-infected, God-denying instincts will actually distract you 
from what will actually save you from your sin. So we have to preach the cross. If you don't preach the cross, you leave people to their natural sinful inclinations and they cannot know God. So we have to preach the cross as the gospels reveal it, as the epistles unfold its meaning and its significance. We have to show it in all of its detail, even if it sounds foolish. It is that foolishness that actually is the wisdom of God to salvation. The Jews will seek for signs. They want something supernatural. We have them in our culture. They want to see something supernatural that would prove something to us. The Greeks search for wisdom. We have it in our culture where people simply want something logical. What do we preach? Christ crucified. Christ crucified. That makes those who want to see a supernatural sign stumble. It makes those who want wisdom Look at us as fools. But to those who are the called, verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's one reason we preach the cross. It defies all of our natural instincts to the point where it actually shows us what will save us from our sin. Let me show you a second reason why we preach the cross. Not only does it deny our natural instincts, but secondly, the cross ignores all of our social structures. The cross ignores our social structures. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, and notice the phrase, according to to the flesh or according to worldly standards according to the flesh that means according to what is natural in fact that little phrase there according to the flesh what is natural that is the controlling idea here it emphasizes what is bound in this life bound in this world what is human what is earthly what is opposed to what is spiritual what is opposed to what is godly and heavenly within the realm of salvation What is according to the flesh is what is natural as opposed to supernatural. Consider your calling, consider your salvation, brethren, that in the natural world, the fleshly world, the, the world without God, there weren't many of you who were wise according to that worldly standard. There were not many who were powerful according to that worldly standard. There were not many who were noble according to that worldly standard. In other words, natural wisdom did not characterize most of you who have come to faith in Christ. Most of you were not connected with the socially clever, the intellectual class, the kind of people who were dominated by and lived for and immersed their lives in culturally defined intelligence. Natural power is not what brought you to God. It's not who you were. Maybe that natural power refers to influence or prominence, political influence, social power, political power, some kind of authority. Whatever is viewed as strong, and we are enamored in our world by something looking strong. Someone can be a true fool, but if they look strong, we'll vote for them. We see this all over our world. 
We love the look of natural wisdom and natural power, physical physique, political persuasion, someone who looks and sounds authoritative, who has social influence. We want people to see us as significant so they'll follow us and like us. Paul is telling this ancient church as he would tell us as well, probably if you came to faith in Christ, you probably weren't the people who were dominated by the latest edition of People magazine. You were not the people who were getting the next invitation to some TV show to celebrate your prominence. You're probably not, maybe some of you are, looking around the room to see. If you're among the elite of all of the professional athletes in the world, maybe some of you are. I'm thinking not though. In Paul's day, most of these people he's writing to, they would serve the political class. They didn't eat with them. We didn't get invited to the Kennedy Center and ribbons put around our our neck. We're not of that social strata. We're not of the noble. The word noble here literally means in the Greek text, well-born. The well-born, born into privilege. Most of you who have come to Christ, you, you, you didn't come to know God because of your nobility, your name, the position you might have been born into. Does that mean that Christianity is just for the socially weak? Is it only for people who are non-intellectual and socially small and inept and incapable? Is, it only, is Christianity only for the service class of our society? That's how the ancient world used to think of it. One commentator quoted a second century critic of Christianity, Celsus. He said this of Christians. Their injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. By the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves, women, and children. That's actually the view of some people in our modern world today. It was reported in the Washington Post several years ago of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign communications director who said that the more powerful people among conservatives are usually Catholics because if the powerful were evangelicals their rich friends wouldn't understand them conversion to Christ is not an enhancement of what the natural world considers elite Conversion to Christ is a reputation and it's a repudiation and in bearing a reputation that looks foolish to the world. The world looks for something that's powerful and important and wise and significant and influential and the cross just does away with all of that as a way to get to God. Have you ever thought about it? All of those social strata that we want creates in us a desire to have a certain kind of image. And it dominates us. We want to look a certain way. 
We want people to see us a certain way. And we will, we will work ourselves into an anxious frenzy over this image. And what does that anxious frenzy do to your desire for God? Do you see what social strata does to coming to God? If you pursue it, if you want it, if you desire it, if that's what you think is important, you will try to define your life by it. And all it will do is draw you away from God because God looks and sounds foolish to everyone you're trying to look important to. You can't come to God that way. If you are too ashamed to embrace shame associated with Jesus, you could never come to God, ever. Why is it that we have in the back of our mind, if someone popular, elite, powerful, athletic, political, could come to know Christ, just think of the worldwide influence they would have. I mean, if, if we could find someone really popular, we'd have them come speak on Sunday because their popularity could actually be a better means to share the gospel with more people. More people would say, well, if, if that intelligent person, if that powerful person, if that influential person embraced Christ, well, maybe because of that we should consider God. It's as if God looks at that kind of mindset and shakes his head and says, you don't understand the cross. Christian media is filled with Christian prominence as if it gives greater influence and will reach deeper into the upper classes of the culture and be more influential and that won't bring anyone to God. Yeah, you, you might have more influence on the culture. You might get a following. You might have more people who are interested in what you, you say and what you think. But it won't lead you to think highly of God. It just leaves you thinking highly of people. That leaves you empty of God. If you want to emphasize what's culturally natural, you're going to end up emphasizing something that's not thoroughly Christian. That's not to say that the best, brightest, strongest, wealthiest, prettiest, most handsome, most athletic, most celebrated in our society can't be saved. We're not saying that. But if they are, it will be in spite of their status, not because of it. We're not saying that only the worst and the dumbest and the weakest and the poorest and the ugliest and the most awkward are going to be saved. That they're the only ones who can. But you understand that the word of the cross pays no attention to any of that. It pays no attention to it. The message that we celebrate tonight, the reason why we preach the cross and we celebrate something like the cross is because it leaves no room for what we typically find so socially mesmerizing. Don't you see that? Look at verse 29. Why? Why? So that no man may boast before God. The cross leaves you empty of every kind of social standing as a means of true spiritual significance so that no one can stand before God and say look at me the cross leaves everyone empty 
of any kind of social status that can have a standing in front of God. Just think on that for a moment. Think on this. If the fact that God chooses who and what will bring someone to conversion in Christ, if that offends you, because God chooses who will come to Christ and how they will come to Christ and what he will use to bring them. You say, I don't like that. What alternative will you pick? Every time, if it's not God at the helm of salvation, at the center point, as the stardom behind it all, you will pick something else that exalts and celebrates humanity, not God. Everything God does in the gospel makes it where you cannot boast before God. That's good. Because that's the only way to be saved. The only way to be saved from sin is to be empty of yourself so you can see the fullness of God. Let me finish with one final reason why we preach the cross. It's a simple one. It's in verses 30 to 31. The cross exalts God alone. The cross will not exalt you. It will not exalt us. It will not exalt any social strata. It will not exalt some kind of worldly wisdom. It only exalts God, period. Do you see it in verse 30? By his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You did not get yourself there. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You say, but I believed. You did. By his doing, you believed. He got you there. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us, actually, who was made to become to us. God made Christ to become to us what? Wisdom from God righteousness from God, sanctification from God, redemption from God. By his doing, Christ Jesus was made by God to become to us what is most valuable when it comes to knowing God. And what is that? Wisdom. We look at the cross and we say, there's the wisdom of God. It's perfect if you know the story, if you know what's happened to humanity from the beginning of the Bible, you see the cross is the only answer to that conundrum. When humanity wanted to be autonomous from God in the garden, what would bring them back? Only something like the cross could pay for humanity's rebellion against God. It took the perfect man, Christ Jesus, to satisfy the perfect God as a substitute for us and it had to be his death because it had to satisfy human life before God. It's perfect. It's the absolute most wise, perfect expression of what is necessary to bring us to God. He became to us wisdom. Jesus also became to us righteousness. Do you want a right standing, an acceptable standing before God? It has to be Jesus. It can't be anyone else. No one reaches the level of right standing before God like he did. He obeyed everything according to God's standard. When God looked at him, he said, I'm well pleased in this person and in only this person. 
he becomes our righteousness. How perfect. Jesus becomes our sanctification. He actually causes us to be looked at by God as holy. When God takes the righteousness of Jesus and he imputes that to us, he credits it to our account as if we now possess the righteousness of Jesus. We now have sanctification. God looks at us and he says, you are holy. How perfect. He became to us redemption. That's the language of slavery. Jesus was our redemption. He bought and he transferred us from a place of nothing, nothingness to a place of exaltedness. This is all the divine activity of God. It's what God does with someone that the world sees as foolish and empty. I mean, think about what conversion is. If you're converted to Jesus Christ and you follow him, Conversion is when your eyes supernaturally are open to see Jesus and you relish him being the one who is most wise, righteous, holy, and your only means of redemption. And when those things, when true wisdom and righteousness and holiness and redemption actually begin to matter to you so that you are defined by those things, and you love them, and you affirm them, and you pursue them. What is the result? Verse 31. Let him who boasts, boast in who? The Lord. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, whom the world sees as foolish, have you ever noticed what happens? We find ourselves most thrilled and in awe of what God does and has done than what people do and what we do. We talk more about his activity than our activity. When we come to conversion in Jesus Christ and we see the value of the cross, we tend to talk about his grace, not how special we are. When we see conversion, we're compelled to talk about the activity of God in us, not, not, not our activity for him. Pride is brought down in the brightness of the supernatural activity of God, we boast in him. We preach the cross so that what we boast in, what we find most valuable, what we find most satisfying, most joy in, most exhilarating, most hopeful, most helpful, is God and God alone. Only the cross will lead you to that conclusion. The cross defies all of our natural instincts. The cross ignores social structures. And the cross exalts God alone. Why is Good Friday good? It's the only way we could know God. The world looks at it as terrible, foolish, and we savor it, don't we? That's why you showed up on a Friday night to listen to a guy talk for too long and to take the Lord's Supper and to sing songs about Jesus. Why? You love the wisdom of God. You love the righteousness of God in Jesus. You see the power of God. 
That's why we preach the cross and that's what makes this a good Friday. That's why we, we keep the lights on every good Friday. We don't darken the room. Listen, it was darkened on that good Friday so that it never had to be darkened again, right? So I'm not against if people do a darkening service. I'm just saying we, we keep the lights on because it's, it's good Friday now. It's a worshipful Friday. In light of that, let's bow together and prepare our hearts to remember our Savior, to openly identify our lives with him as we take from the elements that represent what he did on the cross to make us his people.